All right, so good morning. Um, We're going to be doing a lesson today called The Gospel and the Prophets. And we're going to be looking at, throughout the Old Testament, all the different prophecies that are there and how they're fulfilled in the New Testament. I think it's going to be great. We weren't originally planning on doing this, um, but I'm glad that we did. And so we're going to be teaching this at our little Monday night Bible study as a sort of outreach group and sort sort of like a summary or a culmination. And so I think today it'll be really nice to do that. We had an extra week but I'm glad that we did. Um, I was up super late last night, so I've got the the up late at night voice a little bit, but I think it adds something, Peter, doesn't it? Okay, I feel like, yes, thank you. (laughs) That was wonderful, thank you for that. It's great. Um, All right, so I'm gonna jump in real quick. We have uh, for today, this is what it's called, the Gospel and the Prophets. Uh, We're gonna bridge the Old and the New Testaments. We've said this uh, throughout this series, if you've been here, is, is that We've got to stop thinking of the Old and the New Testament as these entirely separate things, and, and even worse, thinking of this thing where it's like, well, the New Testament is the only thing that really matters, and the Old Testament's sort of like like background. Like if you're like a Lord of the Rings fan, like the Old Testament is not like the Cimmerillion, okay? That was for, for Clint. Um, and so it's not like this like little addendum that you know you can read for background. Like it's as important as the New Testament in the sense that it is is God's continuous story of uh, His promise to His people. So. Uh, let's jump in here. Here's our theme verse for today. This is from Luke 24, 44. These are the words of Jesus. And he says, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And we will have plenty of verses from each of those. Uh, so we're talking about messianic prophecy. You're probably familiar about a lot of this, and some of this you may have forgotten. Some of this you may not have realized. Um, but conservatively, you could say that there's about 100 predictions in the Old Testament about a future Messiah that would come and it would come to the Jewish people, okay? Uh, I was reading through uh, The Case for Christ, chapter 10, and it's on this, um, he's a Christian minister now, but he was raised Jewish, and he kind of tells his story and how, you know, in his tradition, a lot of this is not really talked about, and it's, and it's in fact kind of like pushed down, which makes sense, um, but the, when he studied back through it, it was, uh, you know, changed the way he thought about it entirely. And so what you have to understand about these predictions, and as we study through the Old Testament, I think this is clear, is that these were written over a thousand years or longer in you know, different areas. So while they were you know, in different areas of uh, the Middle East, when they were in exile by different authors, and so it's not like it's just from one prophet or from one book, it's from all the different books of the Old Testament. And so I think that's amazing. And so these prophecies, they point to a coming Messiah that's going to rise from the family of Abraham in the line of David, and he, he will establish an eternal kingdom and redeem God's people. Uh, so that's the part about the prophets or about the Old Testament. But what do we mean by the gospel and the prophets? And so we've been talking a lot recently about the gospel and what that means. Um, and in its purest sense, the gospel just means good news. Okay, and so I think in that way, if you look in the Old Testament, you look in the New Testament, there's a lot of good news to be found there. Okay, I think though, as I have read through the Old Testament, as I'm reading through it, you know, each morning, there's I would say more bad news in the Old Testament than there is good news, um, just in its like purest sense. I think that in the Old Testament, what you see is you see humanity continuing to try to define good and evil for themselves, and that doesn't work out. And so the Old Testament is kind of one story after another of the downward spiral of, of man and woman. Um, and then it's also, though, the good side of it is, is that it's God continuing to hold to his promises. Okay? Um, but what we see is we see sin is kind of the key conflict in the Bible. And what sin does is it creates separation. And so you see this kind of play out in the Old Testament um, in the way that the tabernacle is built and later the way the temple is built in the sense that we have a holy God that wants to be close to his people 
and yet we are separated from that holy God by our sin. And so that's the core conflict. Scott did a great job. I don't know if Scott's here. I don't think so. But he did a great job of really illuminating that. I don't know if you were there that, that day where he taught on like 17 prophets and he sort of drew this little story arc. Was anyone here for that? It was great. It's, it's stuck with me since then. But he said that the core conflict of, of the Old Testament and the New Testament alike is that separation. Okay. And so that really plays into everything. Okay. And if you don't believe that you're separated, if you believe you're like, I'm a pretty good person, you really miss the entire Old and New Testament. Okay. Um, the good news is there is a, a resolution to that conflict. As with any good story, there is the conflict, there's the buildup because of that conflict, which we see, and then there's a resolution to that conflict. And I think we know what that is, but that resolution is the gospel. That's the good news. David uses this as example as, as, a, as a medical doctor that if you have a loved one with a terminal disease, what better news would there be than for them to find out that there was a cure? And so if you ever, you know, if you ever heard like, well, there's this new drug and it's going to work and it's going to cure your loved one and it works, what better news could you imagine? And in fact, the good news of the gospel is even better news than that. Um, and so without that good news, we're doomed to spend eternity separated from our creator and from the one who loves us. Um, which is terrible news. So I'll read this part, but how do we define the gospel? I think there's many ways to define the gospel, and I think even that word kind of becomes so many different things. If you Google, like, definition of the gospel, you're going to get like 170,000 queries or something. You know, you're going to get like a lot of different options. Is it the way that we live? Is it some sort of esoteric definition? We would say in its simplest terms, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins, rose again, and has been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. What I would say also, um, as we teach the gospel and as we preach on the gospel, that when that happens, God calls new believers to salvation through confession, repentance, and baptism, and the gospel also acts to convict Christians to follow Christ daily. So I don't like to think of the gospel as just like a one-time thing, like it's the believer's prayer and the gospel was taught and now we can move on to other things. I think it needs to be taught consistently and you see that play out in the New Testament that, that this gospel was taught by Paul to people who had already been Christians, to those who had witnessed Christ. They were still teaching the gospel. They had seen the resurrected Jesus and yet they still needed to hear the gospel. Um, so even more so should we not need to hear it even today. Um, and so, as I said earlier, the Bible is one continuous story. God created us. He made a covenant with us. And despite our continued rebellious actions, he's remained faithful to that promise through the sacrifice of his son. So David and I are going to go through this morning and look at how connected and intertwined this story is in both the Old and New Testaments. And because we don't have two microphones, we're going to do this a few times. So there you go, David. All right. Okay, so that's kind of the... Uh that's the introduction to what we want to do uh, this morning. Let's talk about the Old Testament real quick. And I'll try to be brief because uh, we spent a year like going through the whole Bible. I'm going to try to do the Old Testament in four or five minutes. But I think it's important to see the idea here is the prophets are telling a story of something that's coming that's going to fulfill our greatest need. But why is it going to fulfill our greatest need? And the reason is it's, it's the story of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament starts with this you know, huge event maybe the most important event in the world is the creation of the world like the world begins to exist so god creates a good world and the crown of this creation is 
this, these creatures that are his image bearers, man and woman, who are designed for each other to shine the image of God into all of creation. And God walks with these creatures, our ancestors, in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, can you imagine like that kind of intimacy, that kind of togetherness in the garden with your Creator? So that's the picture of uh, the start of the universe. Um, and this great story lasts two and a half chapters, and then it goes just whole awful, right? So you have creation, then you've got the fall, which of course, this is Genesis 3, and so sin enters the world. And as, call, as Kyle says, this is the central conflict of the rest of the Bible, is you have a holy God, a good creator who created humanity, and then we are separated from this holy God because of our sin. And the rest of the Bible, Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, is God's effort to reconcile us back to himself. So God has to preserve his character. He's holy and just. He must be separated from and must judge sin. But he's also loving, so he must love sinners. And so the rest of the Bible is God working through history to reunite his people back to himself. So this is Genesis 3. A lot of weird stuff that seems kind of funny to us happens between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. We spent a week talking about how maybe we could understand that. But in Genesis 12, there's this pagan guy wandering around in the desert who is not a follower of God. And God picks him out of humanity and calls him and says, I'm going to bless you. This guy's name is Abram, and God makes him three promises. So, changes his name to Abraham, gives him three promises. And these, the fulfillment of these promises is the story of the rest of the Bible. He promises that he'll make him a great nation. He promises that he's going to give him a great land and that all people in the world will be blessed through him. So then Abraham and his descendants, they've got, they have a bunch of babies. We have the, the patriarchs. And so these are really cool stories in the rest of Genesis. So Abraham has a couple sons. Importantly, uh, Isaac is the one who gets the blessing. Isaac has two sons. Firstborn is Esau and then Jacob. Jacob steals Esau's birthright. Then Jacob has a bunch of children, including 12 sons. Those 12 sons end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. But that's going to happen in just a little bit later because his 11th son, Joseph, is sold by his 10 older brothers into slavery in Egypt. Through God's incredible providence, uh, Joseph becomes second in command in Egypt, brings his family to Egypt to be with him during a famine. And so this family that God promises is going to bless the whole world is preserved. They don't die in the famine because through these kind of crazy story, one of their little brothers becomes second in command, brings them to Egypt, and they don't starve. So now they're in Egypt with Joseph. And 400 years passes before the story picks back up. And in these 400 years, the Israelite people, Abraham's family, have lots and lots of babies. There are over 2 million people when the story picks back up 400 years later. And a Pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know Joseph. This Pharaoh enslaves the people, so they're in captivity. So then you know the great story of Moses, right? So then Moses delivers, or God uses Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. They go out into the wilderness. They kind of take the scenic route. They wander for 40 years in the wilderness. They end up in the promised land, back where Moses started from. And there's obviously people living there. So God uses Joshua and um, Israelites' armies to conquer the promised land. And so they conquer this land mostly. It's kind of complicated. They don't conquer it all, but they've got the land and then it starts to appear to the judges. And this is an absolute disaster. So there's seven judges. Five of them are some of the worst people in all of, of history. And then two of them are kind of so-so. But the point is, 
that through the judges, this Israel spirals down, down. The, the last line of judges is like famous refrain. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. And so that's the idea. If there's no authority, there's no moral authority, there's no scriptural authority, there's nothing that we're pointing to to be beyond ourselves. When we just do what feels right to us, it ends in disaster. So at this point, God's people, Abraham's family, they, were, they are worshiping foreign gods. They're committing, you know, just almost the kind of things you don't talk about in church, the, the kind of sexual sin that they're involved in, the way they treat women. Um, it's just, I mean, it's an awful, awful picture of what, what an ugly um, nature that we have as humans. So they cry out for a king. There's this eighth guy. Is he a judge or not? Like, I guess the, the smart Bible guys can argue about that. But this guy named Samuel comes, and he anoints the first king, who's Saul. Saul's like an okay king, but he's not a good enough king to get to pass on, and his children become king. So then King David becomes king. King. So the, I guess you have the king. So, oh no, my uh, marker's running out. So you have the kings. So you've got Saul. Then David. David is a special king. We'll talk about him in just a second. David's son Solomon. Solomon is also king. So David is unique in that he commits some of the most egregious sins that of anyone you've ever heard of. He has a week where he like breaks all the Ten Commandments in one week. He's just gonna he's gonna do it solid if he's gonna sin. So he, he covets his neighbor's wife, he lies about it, he commits adultery, he murders Uriah, his neighbor's wife's husband. I mean, just you know, bad week for uh, King David. But King David is very repentant. And so in the midst of all this, he repents. He wants to build God's temple. God says, you can't do that. You know, the life you've lived is not the life of the person who's going to build my temple. But from your line, someone will build a throne and establish a kingdom forever. Forever. So that's 2 Samuel 7. It's an important verse in the Bible. Then Solomon kind of follows in David's footsteps, commits sexual sin, sin of greed, you know, doesn't live the way that God would have him to live. So his son is Jeroboam. No, his son is Rehoboam. And his first commander is Jeroboam. You kind of wish God could have like made those names a little different. But <laughs> so there's Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and they can't get along after Solomon dies. So there's the first civil war. Not the first, but the, the major civil war in Israel history. So then Israel divides into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom has Judah and Benjamin. That's important because where's the, where's the Messiah going to come from? The line of David who's from Judah, the southern kingdom. That's a really important like historical coincidence that, that it had to happen that way. The northern kingdom is the ten other tribes. So in 722, Assyria conquers all of the Middle East except for uh, Judah, the southern kingdom. It's really weird. Like you should read the kind of the historical books about what happened. But literally, Assyria, like all of this in the Middle East, Assyria conquers everything, and then just leaves the southern kingdom. They don't conquer the southern kingdom. Why is kind of a, a mystery. We're not exactly sure, but they don't. So they leave the southern kingdom. That's 722. The ten northern kingdom kingdoms are northern tribes are lost to history. They assimilate into the Assyrian nation. There are no more northern kingdoms. The southern kingdoms are preserved. Babylon in five, 500 conquers the southern kingdom and takes them out, out into exile. So that's when you hear the stories like Daniel and some of the prophets are writing when the southern kingdom's in ex exile. Then Persia conquers Babylon and lets the Israelites come back home. So you think there's all these threats. These people almost lost their identity as a, as a race, as a nationality. These people almost lost their land. But here at the end of the Old Testament, you have the people returning home under, under 
beneath these minor prophets, new leadership. They rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed, and they're, they are groaning at the end of the Old Testament for a Messiah. And so a few things happen after the end of the Old Testament. This kingdom conquers this kingdom. This nation conquers that nation. Ultimately, at, at the start of the New Testament, Rome is in control. But the point is, this small tribe, Benjamin and Judah, now called Israel, are still existing on their land as a nation awaiting the fulfillment of these promises. Do a little switcheroo here. Great, David. Did you notice David put a star next to his name? Was that, was that difficult? Was that weird for anyone else? No? Okay. All right. Um, so we're going to get into a section we're going to call Whispers of a Messiah. And we're going to look at these, not all 100 predictions, but as I said earlier, there's about 100 predictions. Hey there. Sorry. I know I'm talking again. Um, and we're going to focus on 10 of our favorites. First, what I wanted to do is in this chapter on... Uh, in the case for Christ, which you've never read, it's, it's very good, uh, as they're talking about Old Testament prophecies, they look at three of the main objections to these prophecies, some of which may occur to you as we're reading these, and you're like, well, couldn't have you just like done it that way, or maybe was that a coincidence, and some of these sort of things. So I want to look at those really quickly. So the first one is the coincidence argument. This is the idea that when you see these prophecies and you see them borne out in the life of Jesus, could it not just be a coincidence that he fulfilled these prophecies? What I would say to that, and they had a statistician, statistician that came up with, you know, the likelihood of this being, you know, all just a coincidence in the life of Jesus. And the number they give, it almost seems like it's overdoing it. It was like, you know, several trillion, 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 blah, blah, blah. And it's like written out on the page, like several trillions. Um, but I would just say that it's statistically impossible. Um, there are over a hundred. And for those to just coincidentally and accidentally happen in the life of one man, seems very unlikely, okay? So I think that is an argument that's not that great. Um, and I don't know that it's probably one of the more common arguments, but the next one is the altered gospel argument. And this is the idea that could the gospel writers have fabricated these details in the life of Jesus to make it match up with the stories that they knew from the Old Testament, from the prophets. To me, this would seem the most likely, like this would say, you know, if I'm being a real cynic, and these would be the arguments you'd usually, you know, kind of read is, well, okay, they're trying to prove that this was the Messiah because that was important to them politically or, you know, in their lives. Why wouldn't they just kind of match it up? And almost like you, like, list out the hundred things that are prophecies and say, all right, well, Jesus would have done this, and let's, let's have him do this, and then next he'll, you know. That, to me, makes sense. That seems most plausible, let's say. I, I think the problem with that, it, first off, if you look at the Old Testament, you could even say, well, were some of those maybe added in after the fact? Well, we now have, you know, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and even like the Septuagint uh, version, version, rather Septuagint version of the Old Testament, um, both of those were proven to exist prior to the time that Jesus walked the earth. And so we have these documents that date back before that time. And so we would then say that the Old Testament prophecies weren't changed after the fact. Okay, so we can know that of the Old Testament. That at least what it's written in there, we can confirm. There's no difference you know, in, in the grand scheme between the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible either. So it's not like the Christians went and kind of, you know, meddled with the details and kind of stacked it in the favor of, you know, the Christian Messiah. Okay, so that, that didn't change. Well, what about the New Testament and the Gospel writers? Because I think that's probably where it would most make sense. Well, the Gospels, written between 70 and 100 AD, would have been circulated during a time that people were alive who had seen Jesus, that were aware of what happened when Jesus was alive. Maybe not of everything in the life of Jesus, but certainly it's fair to say that if the gospel writers um, had fabricated these prophetic things, it would have been very easy for Jewish people at that time to question them and say, well, there's no, this did not happen. He did not ride on a donkey. 
Um, I was part of the Sanhedrin. It was not 30 pieces of silver. It was actually 100 pieces of silver, you know, or whatever. I mean, they, they would have been able to call that out. I think the last thing, and this is, this is also a good proof for just Jesus in general, is, is that uh, people are willing to die for things they believe in. And we saw both Matthew and Luke, uh, traditionally thought to be martyred, die for what they believed in. And if they were just fabricating this, I think there would have been a point where they're like, all right, I made it all up. I, I didn't mean that, right? Um, and so I, I think it's unlikely that it was just fabricated. Okay, the third thing is the intentional fulfillment argument. This is the argument that maybe Jesus was like, all right, look, I'm going to do all these things, and I'm going to fulfill all these things because then it'll make me look like I'm the Messiah. And so maybe Jesus maneuvered his life to fulfill these prophecies. And I think that's fair for some of these. Like the most obvious one to me is we would have been pretty easy to ride into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, okay? Like I think we could have arranged that one, all right? I think that um, there's probably some other ones. Maybe phrases he said on the cross. Maybe he's on the cross. He's like, oh, yeah, I need to say this verse. I need to do this thing. And I don't need to speak at this time or whatever. Like, hey, don't break my bones, okay? Like, I mean, I think there's some of these things he could have done. But how in the world could Jesus have controlled what happened as it pertains to when he was born, who he was born to, that being a virgin, where he was born, um, Judas getting 30 pieces of silver, or the soldiers who gambled over his clothes. There's you know, an unending list of things he could have not possibly controlled. Uh, so I think it answers to that. All right, so here is just like a random list I screenshotted of all the different prophecies. These are probably, it's probably not an exhaustive list, but you kind of get an idea of, oh, wow, there's a lot there, okay? Um, but we're going to focus again on the 10 that we, uh, we wanted to focus on. Um, so the first one is from Genesis 12.3. And if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can, but I will read them. And so Genesis 12.3, this is the nations will be blessed through Abraham's lineage. And the verse says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And David did a great job talking about that. The next one is from Genesis 49.10. This is the scepter will come through Judah. And so as David was drawing there about the tribe of Judah and why it was important that it was salvaged and, and, and kept whole along with Benjamin, um, it, it, in this verse it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So you either come from Judah or you don't. Okay, and so that's why the genealogies start off Matthew. And that's why as a kid, when you open the New Testament or you hear kind of stories of people like, you know, I was in a hotel and I was like, maybe I'll give Christianity a chance. And you open up Matthew and it's a genealogy and you're like, this is terrible. You know, what is this? Uh, the reason it starts with that is because it's showing that David, uh, you know, was, was the line through which Jesus came. You see in Luke actually a slightly different genealogy. I think the point of that, as I understand it, is, is that Luke's genealogy is that of his mother. Matthew's is that of his father. That's kind of what we think. But both go through Judah. Okay. All right, so the fourth, uh, sorry, the third one here is, is that David's offspring will have an eternal kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is the idea that through David will come an eternal kingdom. Again, like I want to state, you know, these are things that were written a thousand years before Jesus, some of these. And as you're reading this at that time, I don't know if it would even make a lot of sense, you know. Um, and of course, we all know that like what the, the Jews kind of were expecting a Messiah was different. Um, and yet it was still fulfilled in this. And so uh, there's a lot of beauty in that, I think. 
All right, the fourth one, the method of his execution. So this is in Psalms 22. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I think the interesting thing about this one is, is that crucifixion wasn't even invented at the time this was written. And so the idea of his hands and his feet being pierced, I don't even know like what he would have thought he was talking about in that sense. And so to have you know, a method of execution that pierces the hands and pierces the feet, um, it's really kind of eerie you know, to read that and to know that this is something, I assume this is David that wrote this, maybe not David if, you know. Yeah, it's probably somewhere in that range where it's either David or someone else, but um, to have that written that long ago is pretty cool. And then the last one here is, is the soldiers who gamble for his clothing. Like we said earlier, there's no way you can control whether they're going to gamble over that or not. And uh, sure enough, in Psalm 22, same chapter, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Okay, so David's got five more. Uh, for a lot of reasons. One, I, I love kind of the mystery of the text, and it's neat to think this is written so many years ago and we're living out this story. Another reason is it's faith-affirming, right? So we, we live in a time when I, th- I think skepticism is, is popular, and it's, um, it's easy to kind of doubt and question your faith for a variety of reasons. And so I think it's important to have things you kind of hold on to and say, well, I don't understand everything about God or everything about why things happen, but... Um, you know, this is a place where I can kind of hang my hat and say, God's real and my, my faith matters. And so these are words written down, <clears throat> inspired by the Holy Spirit, centuries ago, and I think point to something uh, true about who Jesus said he was. So the next is the virgin birth. So you look at Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's pretty, that's pretty specific. So Isaiah, Isaiah 9, verse 12, His ministry will begin in Galilee. This is a little bit longer verse. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, He will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So the people in Galilee will see this light coming in, in awaken them from their darkness. So Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. So um, some of my favorite um, Bible writers think this is like the most important chapter in the whole Bible. So I'm not smart enough to recognize that, but this is a really important chapter, Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Micah 5 tells about where Jesus was born. This again is something Jesus had very little influence over. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, (laughs) though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And then just like the, like the beauty of that poetry. So Jesus' origins are from of old. Of course, he created the universe. Like that's what Colossians 1 said. He is literally from of old, and he will be the one uh, that will rule over all of Israel. Out of the small uh, tribe, the small region uh, from Judah comes Jesus. And then, uh, like Kyle alluded to, uh, 
Zechariah 11, verse 12 and 13 says the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. I told them, if you think it's best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they value me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. All right, we're almost done switching. Hold on. Um, all right, so we're going to look at maybe the most famous um, section of kind of prophecy, and we're going to read the entire section, and it will be up on the slide so you can kind of follow along. Uh, but this is going to be from Isaiah 53. So if you want to get Isaiah 53 out, I think this will be a good one to kind of follow along. There are several uh, different prophecies here that are fulfilled, and I think this is a great little section. Uh, so this was written about 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it, it's literally, as much as anything, it seems to be writing every detail about the story of Jesus, and it's this idea of a suffering servant uh, who took on the punishment that others deserved, and as a result of his wounds, we are healed. Okay, so we'll read this together. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 3-9, and verse 12. All right, so David's going to go through a little bit of this, and then we'll have a video, and then we'll wrap up. Okay, so let's just maybe talk a little bit. I think some of this you would kind of get if you just sat down and read it yourself, but I think it'd be kind of neat to talk about it as a group. So you think about... Um, these verses, so he was despised and rejected by men. Is that the story of Jesus? Well, of course. I mean, that's, that's how the story ends. He took up our affirmities. So this is almost like we're doing like theology of the atonement in 700 years before Jesus was born. So literally on the cross, Jesus takes up our infirmities. Our ailments are given to him. And then he was pierced for our transgression. So the suffering servant dies in a way that requires his piercing. So I think Isaiah is, is really talking about a, a, a picture of a servant who dies that looks a lot like the picture of Jesus. So this, in some ways, this is the gospel. This sentence right here back in Isaiah. So there's a Sometimes you say like the gospel in Isaiah 53, you may have heard that phrase, but the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So we've got this separation from God that exists with us, and that is, that's the opposite of peace. That's tension, that's, that's war with, with God and with each other, literally. And so how do we obtain peace? Well, it's, it's through the punishment that was given Jesus. Jesus took our sins, and we get the gift of peace, and we're healed by his wounds. 
So the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again here, this is just the idea that Jesus took on our sins. He literally was in our place. What's sometimes called penal substitutionary atonement. He was punished in our place and he was our substitute. He took the sin, the punishment that we deserved and because of that we're given uh, grace. We're given the gift of peace. So this is kind of neat. He did not open his mouth. So he's oppressed and afflicted and really these trials and they're like beating him and challenging him and are you the Messiah? And Jesus wouldn't answer their questions, right? So I think, you know, Kyle talked about that like the intentional fulfillment argument. Some of Jesus' life, I think he did intentionally fill the prophecies. I think in a way that he's saying to everyone, I am the Messiah. I think that's part of the reason uh, that the Pharisees got so mad at him. Is he, uh, of course, some of, uh, much, much of the prophecies he couldn't intentionally fulfill, but some of it he did. I think he rode in on a donkey on purpose to say, I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one of Israel. And I think um, maybe the way he acted at, at some of the trials was on purpose. He was trying to say something beyond just, um, I'm a, a Jewish rabbi that has made some people mad. He's trying to make a, a larger point. Who can speak of his descendants? We don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but you remember we just talked about Acts. Philip confronts this Ethiopian eunuch. You guys remember that story? And um, Philip goes to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the scroll. He's reading Isaiah 53. That's what the text says. And it doesn't say this in the text, but I wonder. So he's a eunuch, right? So he can't have children. And so I wonder if the Ethiopian eunuch connects with this verse in Isaiah 53. So the suffering servant does not have any children. Who can speak of his descendants? So I wonder if that connection the Ethiopian eunuch makes in his chariot to think, I don't have any descendants either. And Philip connects that with him. And, and then the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized and becomes one of the first non-Jewish people to become part of the people of God. Uh, he had a grave with the wicked. So remember he was executed next to two criminals and he was with the rich in his death. Remember where he was buried? So Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, buried Jesus in his tomb. So he was he died with the wicked and with the rich. And again, I think just is good theology here. He bore the sin of many. So there's sometimes this idea that Jesus died as like an example of suffering or sacrifice or what it means to, to live a life for other people. And of course all that's true, but any explanation of Jesus' death that doesn't include the idea that he bore our sins, that he t- took our place, is, it falls kind of short of the prophetic Messiah that Israel was expecting. Okay, here's the video. The New Testament. If you open up a Bible to a table of contents, you'll see it's made up of two large collections, the Old and New Testament. Wow, so they did in eight minutes what I tried to do in 45 minutes and did a better job. So um, that's really the story of, of the Bible, and it's a story uh, that we're trying to be about. So it's, it's why we came to church this morning. It's um, <clears throat> why we're trying to live our life for something uh, beyond ourselves. So briefly, the, the whole story of the Bible is kind of five basic themes. The first idea is the character of God. So you have this good God who's also holy and must be separated from sin. And then you have the second major theme is the sinfulness of humanity. So we are not good and we don't get to live in the presence of God because of our sin. So then you have this long story about how God works through this single family to bring about 
um, a sufficient Messiah, Jesus Christ, who lives a life we can't live, dies the death that we deserve to die, and conquers our enemies, sin and death, that we can never conquer. So that's the idea of the sufficiency of Christ. Then fourth, you have uh, the necessity of faith. So you have, so you got this whole story, so what do you do with it? So we didn't spend as much time on this this morning, but the, the answer of the New Testament is you put not just your belief, but your faith, your trust into Jesus. So you trust Him with your life and your eternity, and you live for Him now because your plan is to live with Him for eternity. And so you do that through a bunch of ways, partly by confessing your sins, by taking on Christ in baptism, and then by joining and being a part of a faith family that's trying to live differently in this world because we're looking towards the next. And the fifth theme is the urgency of eternity. So this story is not a story like Aesop's Fables or King Arthur or any of the great epics, even Lord of the Rings, which is maybe the, the greatest of the epics. But you read this story and it inspires you to live better and then you kind of leave it there and you try to live your own life uh, privately better because of how you're inspired by these fables. This is a true story. And this is a true story that matters not just in 33 AD, not just in 2019, but it's going to matter 10,000 years from now. And so eternity is coming, and how we live now is urgent because this story is true. So if you believe the prophets, if it connects with you, if, it, if this story rings true, then we can't keep living as if it doesn't matter. We have to live like it does matter. So how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we pray for, what we live for, what we dream about our life being for the next 50 years should be totally different because the grave was empty. And Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel, rose from the grave conquering sin and death, and we are now a part of his family and will be forever. So I think there's a lot to think about, about what kind of people do we want to be in light of what God's given. So let's pray. I appreciate I love going through the Bible together. This is kind of the culmination of, of several months. We started in Genesis, finished up kind of a summary of the Bible today. So we'll start next week uh, with, a, with a hope class right here. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people in this room. Thank you for your story. God, I just pray that we could all be faithful to it, whatever that means in our lives. God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. It's in his awesome name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so that's our lesson on the gospel in the prophets. And sorry for all the mic switches. I feel like as we do that, the sound always cuts out. Uh, that is a little silly little dongle that iPhone forces. <laughs> if they just had the audio jack, it wouldn't do that. But uh, I think it's all good. Um, so I, I'm going to wrap up pretty quickly. Um, I've really enjoyed studying through the Bible. I hope you've gotten a lot out of it. I think it's wonderful to see how the story repeats. There's a video that we weren't able to put into the podcast. We always cut the, you know, the audio during the videos. Uh, it's eight minutes. It's on the New Testament by the Bible Project, and it summarizes the whole of the New Testament. It also does a great job summarizing the basic core themes of the Old Testament. And so if you're wanting to tell someone what the Bible is about, what the point of the Bible is, in eight minutes that video does as good of a job as anything I could ever imagine. So please go look that up. It was fantastic, um, and I got a lot out of that. Better than the job that we did, for sure, was that eight-minute video, so go look that up. We'll be back, and I don't know that we'll be on the podcast. Uh, we'll have to see, but we'll be back next week with an intergenerational class, with the HOPE class. Most of the members of that class are in their 60s and 70s, and uh, we're going to meet two weeks. One week will be on how the younger in a church can learn from the older, the next week will be how the older can learn from the younger. And then the last week will be a panel on different questions uh, pertaining to 
It's sort of all of the above. Okay? So uh, the church is intergenerational, but I think more and more we sort of silo ourselves into young and to old, and I think that's to the detriment of the church. And so we're going to seek to do that at least in three weeks to sort of uh, you know, gain some relationships and some, gain some clarity on how we as a church can work effectively together as both the young and the old. Because, of course, we're all the same. <laughs> we're all the family of God, and it doesn't matter if we're young or we're old. And certainly there's a lot to be learned from each of us. So we'll do that, and uh, we just appreciate you for uh, listening in, for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.